Hello, friends. Welcome to La Vital Core Salon. I'm still Kara. I'm still your host and your salonier. I also have a modern woman for you to meet who is not letting bullshit or burnout stop her. Sandra Williams is her name. Some of you might know it. Some of you may have heard her voice. For those of you who are totally new to hearing Sandra's name, I want to tell you a little bit about this humble, hardworking singer. Sandra's from the Bronx, but got her start working her way up through Amateur Night at the Apollo. She's been a touring member with artists including Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, Victor Wooten, and Low Cut Connie, which is how I met Sandra, through our friends Low Cut Connie. She's recorded with artists such as Kesha, Amy Winehouse, Moby, Karen O of the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, and Lady Ray. She's written her own music. She's also had a solo career and is also part of Son and Star, who are signed to Daptone Records. And this spring, Sandra will be touring with the legendary Mavis Staples. So that's just part of her professional cred. But we're also going to learn about Sandra, the woman, and the working mom. I'm so grateful for Sandra for really opening up during this interview and sharing so many stories that we can learn from. And I know Sandra herself would talk about how music has a real healing power to it, but I happen to think her story does too. I know you haven't heard our conversation yet, but I think you're really going to dig it. It's been such a blast getting to have this time with Sandra, and I'm so happy to share it with all of you. And if you dig this episode and you want to lift up and help amplify what Sandra's doing in the world and help support this podcast, please share it with one person you know. Text it, email it, send it by carrier pigeon. Whatever's the easiest and fastest for you works for us. So thank you. And voila, meet Sandra Williams. Sandra, welcome to the Vital Core Salon. Hey, Cara, how you doing? Oh my gosh, I am so excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here talking to you. You know, we are good friends, and um, even though we've known each other a short time, but we're good friends, and I look forward to talking to my friends all the time, but especially here with you today. Yeah. I know. I feel like I get to see you pop up and like, I'm down in Austin and boom, there you are. Or I'm, I bump into you in Nashville. There you are. Yes. I'm a, a I call it a world traveler. <laughs> yes. And let's get the audience on the same page with who you are and why you're doing so much world traveling. So you sing. Right. Like there's no other way to put it. Like song is such a part of who you are. You sing solo. You sing with bands. You sing around the world on TV, in movies, in videos, even in video games. Yes, I sing and I love it. How did this start? I'm going to take it back as far as I can to my earliest memories when I was younger, Cara, my parents, we lived in the Bronx, New York, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom at the time, and my dad was a restaurateur, 
he worked in restaurants and was starting to own one. And they would both get up early in the morning and for school, they would turn on the radio and there was a radio station called WWRL in New York and it would play all the soul songs. And I just remember being consciously aware of the music coming out of that stereo and uh, I started to sing to it at a young age. And I enjoyed it. I didn't really think about being good or not. I just know it felt good when I sang. And I loved the melodies and the voices I heard. And they were fascinating. And I just started singing along with that. And uh, as I got older, my dad was a singer. And my mom sang. My dad sang good. My mom sang but I don't think nobody would pay her to sing. <laughs> I know that category really well. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they both kind of sang to me, and uh, that's when I became really interested in it because they both seemed happy when they did it. So you're this little girl. You're taking in all of this amazing soul music. You got mm-hmm. parents who are singing. Where did it go from there? I'm picturing, like, the kid with the hairbrush. Yes, I did the hairbrush thing. <laughs> I, my mom had some old, beautiful curtains. Um, and I remember the colors. They were like fall colors. So there was like burgundy, rust, uh, green, and golds. And I loved those curtains and the colors against my skin. So I would leave on my little, my little girl panties, take everything else off, and wrap <laughs> the curtain around me and get my mom's hairbrush and sing in the mirror, floor-length mirror on the door. And I just loved it. And from there, my mom saw that I had an interest in it. And she started to take my little sister and I to auditions. She started to take us to piano lessons and vocal lessons. But my sister and I didn't really acclimate well to the piano lessons and the vocal lessons and so she started taking us to church instead and that's where the gears kicked in that's when everything turned all the way up um because around you in church there's nothing but music and the kind of church i went to which was a baptist church in the bronx new york and uh People came there and they had some stuff to get out of their system, you know. So they'd shout it out. They'd cry it out. They'd sing it out. And um, I would listen to the choirs and I expressed um, interest to my mom that I would like to join the choir. And she put me right in there, me and my sister. So how old were you at this point? At that point, I was about six or seven years old. Yeah. So you were really little in the choir. Very little in the choir, and I was a little shy girl, and it was kind of like being introduced to a new club of people. At the beginning, I felt like an outsider, right, my sister and I, but it was interesting when I started to sing, people were interested in me, and they would say how nice they thought I sounded and enjoyed hearing me. And that was new to me because my mom and dad would always tell me I sounded good. But for some people that I didn't know to take an interest in like what they heard, I was happy. But I was also, I thought they were pulling my leg. I thought they were making fun of me for some reason. That sounds a little like imposter syndrome going on. 
What is imposter syndrome? So it's this, and obviously there's there's academics that would probably kick my ass around for this definition, but it's this notion that as women get more successful or if we have these natural skills and talents and people recognize that in us, that sometimes we don't believe it ourselves, right? Wow. And what's crazy about this phenomenon known as imposter syndrome is the more successful women get, the more entrenched they get in that belief that it was just an accident. It was just luck. You know, it it was lots of hard work that that we we don't necessarily own that success sometimes. Right. That happens to I'm sure that happens to a lot of women. And I'm sure I felt that even as I got older, I'm sure I felt that at to- a time or two. So that's interesting because I didn't know there was a name for it. Yeah, it and what's even more insidious is when I think it was like in the 70s or the 80s some researchers started studying it and when they yeah. put women together to talk about this thing called imposter syndrome all of these women, you know, they would hear the accomplishments of other women in this circle and they're like you're amazing. How do you not believe you're amazing? And wow. then, you know, they would often get that in return, right? Because they were looking at women that had some modicum of success in their life. And then the women would leave the circle, get back in their car and and think, well, everyone else there is successful, but I can't believe they didn't pick up that I'm a total fraud and an imposter. Wow. Well, you know what? That's very interesting. Women need to love ourselves a lot more. Amen. Amen. You are speaking to someone who makes this podcast because I deeply believe that myself. It's really true. I didn't, I'm like sitting here fascinated because um, I didn't know there was a name to it, number one. And to, you know, that know that there are women who don't believe in themselves to that point. And that means when you, it feels to me, in my humble opinion, that when you feel like that, then when you go out into the world, you take a lot of crap that you don't deserve. Yes. You put up with a lot of crap. Yes. And and the fact that all of us women, like, we look at someone else and we're like, you're amazing. And inside, they could actually be thinking, well, that's really nice of them to say that, you know, it's amazing that I was just finished this album or I just finished this tour or I just did this amazing thing or I just became a lawyer. But that sounds really common. It's so in 10 years of private conversations, I can say it's really common among the frazzled type A women that I talk to, for certain. Wow. Well, here's to frazzled type A women, because <laughs> even despite that, you're still getting it done. Hey. <laughs> hey. <laughs> here's to healing on that, everybody. Yes. So, Sandra, you're this little imposter in church. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was me. Where do we go from there? Well, I stayed in church with uh, my mom. She became deeply entrenched in church. It was good for her spirit and the things that she had to go through in her life. And she felt that it it was strengthening her kids by having a spiritual base and a safe place to go and not be playing in the streets outside because where I lived in the Bronx, there were parks, but it was around the late 70s, early 80s. And gun violence was 
a part of our neighborhood as well as drugs were starting to infiltrate our neighborhood really badly. Heroin, when I was a little girl, heroin was present in a drug called methadone, which was supposed to help recovering methadone addicts. So I saw a lot of methadone addicts in the streets leaning and they were frightening. And then crack slowly started to come into our neighborhood. And I began to see some of my friends' families who had dads and working moms and dads. And I started to see their fathers or mothers start taking drugs and I saw it start to tear families apart. So my mom kept us in church because she felt it was a safe place to go. So I stayed in church and I loved it. I had friends. I learned a lot. And uh, the person who played piano in our choir, I was what my voice is what people were called uh, an alto. There is sopranos, altos, um, uh, baritones and tenors and I'm the mid I'm alto but I do have a higher range which they called second soprano so I'm called a contralto and the person who ran our choir played the piano for our choir moved me out of the alto section into the soprano section because he said he felt I could do it I was like I'm not a soprano he's like get in the soprano section so I did, and I appreciate that, Cara, because what he did was he taught me how to train my voice without me knowing. He taught me how to train my voice, how to reach certain notes um, by using different kinds of vocal techniques. So I, at that age, I could hit really high notes and sustain them for a long time, and I attribute him to that. So after church, I started, I got much older, and uh, at 15 years old, I became pregnant and it was a shock to my parents, primarily, I guess, because I was in church and they felt like they had me, you know, nice and sewn up. But uh, I felt like I was in church too much. And when I was out of church and had some time I wanted to explore and I met my son's father. And at that age, I said I was Disney-fied. I felt like if I met a guy, I'd fall in love, and we'd grow old and have kids, and I'd live happily ever after with him. And that was not the truth. So I got a, had a baby at 15, and I realized that I had to finish school. I promised my parents, and I told them I would work. So when I turned 16, I started working for the New York City Summer Youth Program, which provided jobs for low-income kids in New York City. And I did that for a while, and I worked. My mom and dad helped me raise my son and his paternal grandma. And uh, I finished school, and I started working several different jobs. And the job I by now, I'm like about 22, 23, and I started working for the Port Authority in New York at LaGuardia Airport. And while I was there, I started getting an interest in going to the Apollo Theater in New York City because some of my friends in my choir started going there. And that opened up a whole new world for me. And that was the beginning, I say, of the second, second era of 
my singing evolving. Whoa. All right, Sandra. Let me back up here. Because there mm-hmm. was so, you have already lived so much life by like age 22. Yes. So it it sounds like you're in church and then you're realizing like, okay, I'm in church a lot. And there's this whole rest of the world and you were dipping your toes in, <laughs> to put it mildly, yes, right? I was a cur- <laughs> yes, I was a curious, you know, you're curious. You have so you, you have the same routine. Kyra, my mother had me in church Sunday for a service. And it usually was a morning service and an afternoon service. Then I go home, I do my homework, you know, play with my siblings or whatever. And it was time to bed. We go to school. There was something going on, like a revival or something going on where guest preachers would come during the week most of the time. So we were in the church probably three to four times a week during the week. I remember doing my homework on the pews. I still got my straight A's. And then Saturday would come and there would be some luncheon or some fish fry or something. And then choir rehearsal. Girl, I was, after a while, I was like, enough already. I need a minute. Sandra, what can we learn? Because there's a lot of women that would have a baby that young, and then life would kind of start coming unraveled and continue to unravel. Yet, to use an expression you used earlier, you were able to get this sewn up again. Like, you were able to turn it around and work and finish school and raise your son and have help doing that. Like, what do you think allowed you to emerge from this situation? Thinking about this question you ask, I feel like, number one, I was tired of church, but it was also a very big part of my personality. So we were taught certain ways how to behave and how to be in this world. And when you are faced with obstacles, you rely on your spirituality and your belief and your faith to help you get through things. And I really, really, really had that deep inside my soul. And I still do. But I look at it differently now as I'm older. But at that time, I prayed a lot. And I asked my mom and dad to please, you know, forgive me for letting them down and make that mistake. And I asked God to forgive me. And I promised God and my mom and dad that I would finish school and continue on. And I put stock in that. And I did that. And what I believe having a strong faith where I felt like having a place to go instead of looking at myself as a failure and an embarrassment. And at that point, all the people in my church, I won't say all, that's not true. A lot of the people in my church were looking at me like, not you, Sandra. Oh, my gosh. How could you do that? We would never think that would be you. And that was coming from my teenage peers and from older women in the church that I respected. And it was very, I felt very shameful. I never wanted anyone to look at me, Kara, and think that I was less than. I always, for my mom, she never had, that's, getting pregnant was like the, I won't call it the worst thing, you know, and a bad thing, but if I had to compare it to something some people's kids do, um, that was one of the worst things that my parents could have seen happening. I never gave them an ounce of trouble before that or after that. 
So I was always the kid who wanted my parents not to have to worry about me causing any trouble. So when I got pregnant and I had this beautiful baby boy, I was ready to set the world on fire and achieve for him and to also prove to everybody that, you know, that was just a small bump in the road and I can go further. And I believe my faith and just my own personal determination helped me go on. And I had a lot of support as well. My mom was supportive. My dad told me he was going to jump out the window when I told him I was pregnant, but he oh, never jumped no. out the Yeah, you know, parents, dads, you know, I was daddy's little girl, and he just was not happy about it. So he was like, I'm not happy about this. But he just said it, but he was very supportive, loved on my son and I, and we just unified as a family and kept moving forward. And I would not have been able to do it without my whole family's help. Yeah, because I mean, just the fact that you're like, okay, so I'm working at the Port Authority, like, baby's got to be somewhere, right? Like, you can't just stay home alone or go hang out at LaGuardia Airport with you. No, my mom sacrificed. My mom sacrificed. She sacrificed. My mom always worked, always took care of somebody, always helped somebody. And she had so much love. She sacrificed and helped me through. And my son, I would not have been able to do it, I don't believe, in such a successful way, Kyra, without support. Like, you need support as a young teenage mom. You need support. If you can do it by yourself, I don't think it's possible. I hear you. As Craig and I think about and are trying to have a baby, I'm 41 years old and I'm thinking about how the heck do people do this on their own? Yes. Right? Like, and it hasn't even happened yet. Right? right? Like, but I'm just like, wow. Yeah. Like, I see everyone, like, all the moms around me. It's, it takes a village. It really does. And you have to, you, as, as a young kid, I just loved my baby so much. I used to rub my belly when I, At the point of conception, Cara, I put my hand on a Bible. I swear I could feel it. I could feel this feeling in my belly. I knew I was pregnant. I knew something could happen. It felt so different. And I used to put uh, the headphones to my dad's stereo on my belly. And I, I remember back then I loved this song called Sailing by Christopher Cross because it was so soothing to me. Yes. And I love that song. And I used to put that on my belly and hope that and rub my belly and hope that my son could hear it. Oh, so much yep. cuteness. Yep. And I used to sing it and uh he came out. My son can sing. He doesn't like to do it in public and stuff, but he can sing. Oh, it's not a shock. Look who his mama is. (laughs) Yeah. So you do need a village. I would not have been able to do it. And my church was very supportive, too. A lot of people in my church were supportive. But at one point, my mother caught wind that these older ladies in the church, they kind of caught me in the corner one day and they said some things that really hurt my feelings. I don't think they intended to. But they hurt my feelings. And my mother is a firecracker. So she um 
went to the pastor and told him what happened. And then she's not, you're not going to shame my baby. And she actually took us out of the church and we went to a whole new church. Whoa. Yeah. So now at this point, you're in a new church. You're working at Port Authority by day. Yes. And you're starting to hang out at the Apollo. What does that look like? It's crazy because at that point, it was like the 80s, early. My son was born in 1980. So it was like 84, 85, 86. And my son was about four years old. And my friends who were in the church choir, they had started to go out, you know, and hang out at the Apollo. And there were also very famous clubs in Harlem, which wasn't too far from the Bronx. It was uh, the Baby Grand and uh, a couple of other places in Harlem that were very, very famous. And they would come back and tell me. And they were like, Sandra, you need to come with us to this club, girl. We were singing and it was wonderful. We had an open mic. But I couldn't make it because I had a baby. And uh, eventually I wound up going to an open mic and this was like in 1986. I wound up going to a place called Carl's off of the corner and on 145th street and Broadway. And I went there with my friends and it was my first time ever really going in a club like that. And it was fascinating because here were all these vibrant, beautiful people, friendly, bubbling. And a lot of my friends from church and I just sat there fascinated just sitting there I was green 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 (laughs) I know this feeling when I first moved to New York and hit some of the Mm -hmm. clubs and was like this is a whole nother world yes it was fascinating the fashion the personalities there were also like a lot of people who were in uh, the gay community that were in my church and that were in my area um at the clubs and i loved them because they just were so colorful and vibrant and fun and free and funny and just different to me and beautiful to me and i just appreciate them and some of my closest friends were at the day i just call gay and if i'm offending anyone i apologize but i just kind of, that's what i called them Um, at the time and they call themselves and they just were so encouraging to me and they were like Sandra you should come sing and I did and I went and I did my first open mic I sang um, at Carl's Off the Corner and the song I sang everyone clapped for me and it was a very revelatory moment because I received a lot of love that night and that night Cara is the night I met my friend Star Duncan. Ah, who, which yeah, here's like a whole nother friend. road that opens, right? Right. It's still my friend of 30 years or so. Oh my god. And your collaborator. My collaborator, she's my sister, my soul sister, and my singing partner. And we've been friends for over 30 years. And we met that poignant night at my first open mic in Harlem. That is so wild. The serendipity of that. Mm, Yes. It's crazy. Like, I met so many people that night, Cara. But 
I remember Star because there is something to be said. I don't know. I can only speak from my experience. Sometimes you meet a person or you see a person. You might not even spoken to them, but you can see a person and you say, and you feel this feeling like that person means is going to mean something to me or I need to know that person or I connect with that person. And I say, I felt that so strongly when I met star after she sang, she sang that night too. She sung a song called my funny Valentine and, uh, she blew me away. And after she sang, I went right over to her and we introduced ourselves to each other and we stayed friends. So I have to ask, you talked about earlier that you were this shy little girl. Are you still shy at this point? And this was just such an energetic pull that you were like, I must go talk to this woman. It's funny. I was shy as far as getting on stage. I still was, even with church and everything, I still was a little nervous about getting on stage in such an intimate settings because most open mics, the people are kind of a couple of feet away from you. So I was shy about that, but... I wasn't really shy about going up and speaking to people or talking to people. Like I've never been like that. Because church, one thing church does is have people in your face. <laughs> so you're like, if I'm not going to them, they're coming to me. <laughs> right. One way or the other. So you're always talking to people. And it's a beautiful thing. And that's what I also attribute to church, like learning how to talk with people and be open with people and not be afraid to talk with into people and approach people. So I was shy, uh, but not in that regard. Got it. So yeah. now you're starting to perform more. Yes. And within, correct me if I'm wrong, because I've been benevolently stalking you and your story online. <laughs> and like, when did this album come out? When was she here, there, or wherever? Mm-hmm. You're literally like you're going on tour in Japan within a couple of years. So how do you get from this first open mic night to like you're a touring musician? It was crazy. And I'm going to try to put it in a nutshell because I tend to ramble because it's such an exciting thing. (laughs) Uh, It's it's exciting to recount it, your life, because you don't really get a chance to do it often. So, so much, so much living happens Um, in between these times so I'm trying to put it all together for you so I started singing at the Apollo and what would happen is I was running with my friends who were some of my friends from church and now I had a new crew that I had been introduced to um, by my church friends who were part of this open mic scene most of the people there sang in church choirs throughout uh, Harlem and New York City and that was a beautiful thing and we started going to the Apollo because the Apollo had a amateur night, which was called Showtime at the Apollo, the Apollo Amateur Night. And it happened every Wednesday night, if I'm not mistaken. And people would come from all over the city, all over the country to compete um, their talents to win money. And they had the audience could pick who won by clapping and yelling loudly for you or they would boo you off the stage and they also had this character called Sandman who if you got booed he was coming out and basically danced you off the stage it was very embarrassing but that's what you risked participating in this talent show I remember watching this on TV because I feel like Mm -hmm. when I was younger I was babysitting and you're like what's on TV at like 1am 
waiting yes. for some parents to come home. And yes. Sandman scared the hell out of me. Like, really? I, I'm not a singer. I still get mm-hmm. a little bit nervous even when I'm public speaking. I think of it more yeah. as excitement at this point, but, like, there's still a little tinge of nerve there. So right. the idea that, like, people who are amateurs step up and then potentially, like, get booed in the most hostile of ways and then, like, sort of dragged off the stage. Yes. It's it, horrifying. I've done. Thank the Lord. Is I got booed once. And I got booed once because... So on Wednesday nights, before this hit TV, it was just for decades and decades going on at the Apollo Theater, just on Wednesday night before the TV show ever happened. And in the mid 80s, toward the late 80s, more like 87, 88, it still hadn't hit TV yet. And so on Wednesday nights, I would come and I would uh, participate. But the first time I did it, I didn't go by myself. My sister and I, I had a sister named Kim who was 17 months my junior. And she had a beautiful, beautiful voice, but she was terribly shy, like knee knocking shy. And she wouldn't sing for anybody. You could barely get her to sing in church. But when she did, it was such a beautiful thing. And um, she and I decided to go to the Apollo and sing as a duet. So we picked a song, Cara. We got some nice dresses my mom bought us. And we had, this is a story I love. We had these white shoes, but they weren't nice enough for us. So my sister and I said they didn't have enough sparkle. So she and I decided to get some uh, Elmer's glue. And you're bedazzling and the shoes, basically. Yes. We went and <laughs> bought like, like grade, regular grade silver glitter. <laughs> and we took newspaper and put all over my mom's kitchen floor. And we, the night before, we glued our shoes up and put so much glitter on the shoes, shook them off a little bit and let them dry, right? <laughs> I love it. So we get to the Apollo. Yeah, we get to the Apollo. It's time for M. Right? And we put these shoes on. And we look down, and everywhere we were stepping, at the Apollo, we left like glitter shoe prints everywhere. No. <laughs> yep, up and down the stairs. And people were like, who in the heck has all this glitter everywhere? And my sister and I were like very embarrassed because we were just leaving glitter all over the Apollo backstage. So that was funny. <laughs> and uh, so we said, we won't do that again. But we we finally got a chance to sing, and they called us, and we were both nervous. And we went out in front of the audience, and my most of my family had come out to support us. And we finally got out there to sing, and my sister got deathly nervous. Like, she was about to say, I don't want to do this. Oh, and it, no. I was compassionate towards her, but I also felt like, girl, I came so far, let's do this. Like, get so it together. <laughs> yes, pull it together, girl. And we went out there and we did it, but we didn't really do too well. And I understood my sister was already shy and we did that. But I promised myself afterwards that next time I went, I was going to go by myself. And I didn't even tell my mom or anybody. I just got me another song. And a couple of weeks later, I went back by myself and um, I participated in the talent contest and I won that night. 
cut it out. Yeah, I won. I came in first place. And that's when I was like, oh, I can do this. Wow. I can do this. My confidence shot through the roof. And that's when I decided that I might want to do this for a living. So while I was going back and forth to the Apollo singing and and competing, because once you win one level at the Apollo, there's two or three more levels to compete at. I went through those. And then there's something called Top Dog, where all the top winners for each week comes back and competes. And when the Top Dog came for me to compete, I didn't take first place, but I took like second place. And while I was at that show, a Japanese tour promoter from Yokohama, Japan, happened to see me. And he was running tours for people from Japan throughout Harlem to, um, like, uh, you know how people take buses, have buses, and they have tours so people can come out and visit um, iconic areas in New York and, like, yeah. Times Square. Well, yeah, his name was Tommy Tomita. And he came and approached me after one of my performances. And he was like, Sandra, if you can get a band together of your peers, I would like to take you and your band to Japan to tour with a bunch of people. Some of my friends had already gone. And I didn't really have a band, but I asked some of my friends and put a band <laughs> You're together. Like, I'll get a band. <laughs> yeah, I did. We got some of my friends. We practiced in their garage a couple of songs, about 20 songs we learned. And next thing I know, we were on a plan to Yokohama, Japan. Cut it out. So your career is like breaking in Japan, basically. But, yeah, my career <laughs> broke in Japan, in Yokohama, Japan. We played. We were there for a month. They had lodging for us, and it was just a little small walk away from the venue. The venue was also a called the Apollo Theater in uh, the Officers Club in Yokohama, Japan. And uh, I really loved it over there. It was my first time ever being away from home that long. And you go to a place that still feels like somewhere totally different in the world culturally. It was totally different. Um, I loved it, though, because it was like walking into a storybook, a fantasy land, because all I'd known, I'd never traveled farther than down south to see my family in the summertime. And going to Japan, I felt independent, and I felt like my career was beginning, and it really was. I was there a month. We did six nights a week off on Sundays uh two shows a night and i jumped both feet in and i loved it it was a grind but i loved it it was beautiful wow and you Mm -hmm. are learning the ropes like you're learning what it's like to be touring you're learning what it's like to be away from home you're you're building your your chops and your cred as a vocalist yes i'm learning how to run a band I'm learning how to um, administer services for the band. I'm basically the band leader and the lead singer. I had another young lady with me. Her name was Ramona. She sang. She was one of my backing vocalists. She was my backing vocalist. And I just learned how to run a band. It was very, it was like a crash course. I learned how to build stamina. I learned that I needed my rest. I learned how to communicate with people who didn't speak English. I had to learn some Japanese while I was over there that I've since forgotten. But (laughs) 
Use it or lose it, right? Yes, but I just grew up fast um, during that one month. And I missed my family also. It was my first time being away from home and missed my son like crazy. Like I really, really missed him. So our time difference was different while I was over there. When it was daytime in Japan, it was night in New York. So I had to get up and schedule my calls at weird hours of the day. Um, so I could catch my son after school. Oh, so cute. Yeah. And you, you're getting this crash course and then you come home, right? Like you're, you're there for, you said about a month. Yes. And then I come home and you can't tell me nothing by now. Like I feel like I can conquer the world and I have a lot of confidence and I see the world differently now that I'm back home. I think that traveling is very important for people, even if you can't afford to travel far. I believe that travel is a very important component to learning about yourself if you get a chance to travel because it opens your mind to different things in the world, different people, different ways of life. And you learn so much about yourself. So by the time I came home after that month, I felt like I had really grown up a lot. And I started to sing more. I started to venture out and sing and with different bands. When I got back a band, an R&B band hired me and I became a singer in that band, uh, along with a lot of people who are still friends with me now. And, um, I just started working with bands and touring with different bands locally and across the nation. I even went back to Japan about two times with two other bands. And I just started to sing a lot more. And it started to take me away from home more, which was good and bad. Because I started to make money, Kara. More money than I ever had. And it was great because I was helping my family. And I started to take a lot of work, which started to take me away from home a lot um, and away from my son more, which was weird because I was helping my family, but it was creating new problems now and new guilts for me now. I started to feel guilty. Even though I was making money, I started to feel guilty being away from my son and leaving my son with my mom and dad because the money was good coming in to help the family and I was proud to be able to do it but it also started opening doors for new hurts and um, emotional stress because it comes with a cost right like you're having to choose being there to do the homework and things like that versus you're you're paying the bills and you're making sure everyone's covered and every everyone's good that's it's tough. I mean, I remember talking to astronaut Nicole Stott, who mm-hmm. spent several months on the space station, who had a son. I think he was probably around eight or nine at the time. And she's like, yeah, you know, you, you, you call sometimes and your kid wants to be playing with his friends, not talking to mom. And this is the only like window that I can like call from space to like hear his voice. Right. You know, and- he- it gets, it, you start to feel guilty. Yeah, it, it feels mm-hmm. only natural. Yeah. What helped you cope? What helped me cope with that? I don't think that I did cope with it well. Because 
since that since that time I was feeling guilt and then the guilt just got worse and worse because I tended it was a, a snowball I started to work more which I was working at night so the thing was I was home I worked during the day I came home after work I spent time with my son and my family and then I made sure my son was good and I bathed him and made sure we spent time and then I made sure he went to bed and then I hit the streets because the clubs and everything would start like 10, 11 and I was out in the streets singing uh, and wouldn't get home to like maybe 2 or 3 in the morning and that was mostly on the weekends, but I oftentimes during the week as well, because a lot of clubs had things going on during the week, the week that I would participate in or my bands that I was working in would have shows. So it took me away a lot. And I don't know if I really did cope. And I would tell you, I say that because it just got worse. My son started to get older and have different kinds of needs. And as a parent, I felt like I was doing my best, but I'm telling you, when you're young and you don't really have a perspective of what a child really needs, for me, that's not it. Being away from home, even if you justify it that you're out at night or you're at work while he's at school, but... When you do have that time, you're present, but I don't know. It's just not the same as being home all the time. And I'm sure a lot of working moms who didn't go anywhere after they came home from work have that same guilt. And I think it it just blossomed over the years. It got worse as my son got older and... uh I don't think I coped with that guilt. I dealt with it. I carried it around. And to this day, I still have it. I want to thank you for being honest here. Because I feel like sometimes, you know, I listen to podcasts besides Mm. my own, right? Like when I'm editing these things, I'm listening back. But I'm listening Mm. to other podcasts. And I, I think sometimes, especially as women, there is a natural tendency to want to put a bow on shit and just say like, oh, well, now I'm at the end of my story and here's how I coped and it was X, Y, and Z saved me and now everything's great. Smile and, you know, like and the orbit gum sort of sound. Like the little cling of your teeth shining while you smile. Right. You know, I want to thank you for your honesty because I can tell you from conversations that I have with working mothers Yes. That guilt is pervasive and it, it shows up in and manifests in all different ways. But, you know, and I think back to something, one of my girlfriends who had her kids really young said when we were talking about like being a mom and what's it like being a mom. And she said to me at one time, she's like, just picture waking up and feeling like you have fucked up like 50% of your day. Like you start the day knowing like this day is going to go 50% wrong. (laughs) Right. Because you don't, I mean, a grown woman, 
doesn't really know if they have the tools or not. Like, all you know is you're a woman, you have this incredible capacity and natural capacity to bring life into this world, carry it for however long that your womb is able to and bring life into this world. And once the baby is here, it's not a fantasy anymore. Like you have (laughs) a, a little baby human being depending on you for everything. And I have to say, I felt, and I'm a talker. I like to talk to my friends. My friends and I, we have long-winded conversations. So I apologize if I'm rambling or going off or whatever, um, because I feel like I'm just talking to you, you know, one-on-one, which I am. But I'm also aware that I'm doing a podcast so that kind of seeps <laughs> in my mind. Don't but let I'm it. You're to- just talking to me. <laughs> Thank you. I, I felt as a young girl that... There was a lot of things going around in my neighborhood, in my home, with the stresses of my family, my mom and dad, who were both highly intelligent, functioning, working people, trying to raise a family in a low-income neighborhood. There were stresses that they both brought home. Um, It was uh, race stuff. You know, them being put in certain boxes or handled a certain way at work or reach, you know, facing different things. Um, And that stuff came home and sometimes it showed up between them and it wasn't always pretty. And us kids, there were three of us at the time in the house. We all witnessed a lot of things, as I'm sure a lot of people do with their parents um, when they don't really see eye to eye and things become, you know, a, a little scary or hurtful and yeah and so the kids wear that so we as myself it was me I was the oldest in the house my sister was under me then I had a little brother and we all kind of absorbed this energy and found our own ways to escape so for me getting out of the house and singing was a great thing for me to be able to cope with and I knew my son was safe so to me I felt like I was doing my best. I felt like I was there for my son. When um, I stopped working at the airport and just started singing full time. So I was there during the day. I got him off to school. I made sure he had breakfast. I cleaned him up. I sang to him. I kissed on him. I loved on him. I read to him. I did his homework. I did all that stuff. And then once I made sure he was in the bed, I, I went and did my thing. But also, I felt like When I was young and I got pregnant, I had a really, really warped view of what love and having a baby meant. And Cara, I'm telling you, this might not apply to anybody else. But when you're a little girl, the first thing people do is throw a baby doll in your hands. (laughs) They throw a freaking stroller in your hand. A freaking easy bake oven. The pretend vacuum. The pretend stove top. Yeah. (laughs) Fake plastic food so you can act like you're feeding your, like you are, you are brainwashed and put into this mindset that, uh, having a baby, having a home, having a husband, all the Disney movies, Cinderella and all that stuff. 
these little girls like myself, you can't make sense of it and say that it's fantasy. It's fed to you as if Cinderella finds her Prince Charming at the end of Cinderella. They kiss and run off and, you know, happily ever after. And you don't have enough. If people aren't really communicating to you like parents, sometimes they ain't got time to break it down to the nitty gritty and tell you that's all bullswaggle. Like, that's not real. And if you don't have a chance to have that conversation, little girls like me, maybe other girls don't, but you think that that is what life would be. If I get a boyfriend who loves me, we won't argue and fight. Things will be perfect. I'm a good person. And then you have a baby and you wind up saying that, hey, this person I had this baby with, he has some faults that I might not like. Mm-hmm. And might not want to deal with, and I might feel to be the same for him. And now we got this baby, and I have to choose if I want to deal with you and the baby. I'm young, so you know what? Um, you and your faults, it's a bit much, but you got to go because right now I got to choose because you can stay in the baby's life, but I don't want to be, I don't have that jacked up view of mommy, daddy, and baby because. It's not working out between you and I. We're both crazy young and it's just not working out. Not that he was a bad person. Yeah. It was just too much stress. That messed me up because I realized after having my son that none of that Disney stuff was real. None of that thing, those things that I thought that how I would live my life was real. And then reality hit. Especially loving and wanting to be there for my son so much. And what you're describing, too, about, like, what we're fed as women culturally, right? Like, learn how to cook the Fisher-Price food. Learn how to use the Easy Bake Oven. Like, all of those things. And then the trajectory of your life looks totally different from this, like, Donna Reed experience. Right. So it sounds like you're having to also not only reconcile the relationship with your son's dad, but and and make sense of does that need to be in my life? Does it not need to be in my life? Where is my line in the sand? But then also like the work you're doing, like how you're making money doesn't fit with that narrative as well. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't because now I realized that even though his dad was present in his life, but I had to depend on me because we were so young. We were so young and he was from, his dad was from a whole different world that I wanted to deal with in my life. And his dad was trying, we, his dad was healing from pain and hurt too. So, and he was a, I loved them, but I just felt like, oh, man, now it's up to me to take care of this baby by myself. And at that point, all I had and I knew for sure was singing. That's how I made my living. That's how I bought more money into the house than I'd ever seen and was able to do and help everyone was singing. And that's what I knew for sure. And since then, that's what it's always been. And you work hard. You're hustling. Like, what is what does it look like at this point in your life? Like, you're back from Japan. You're working in New York. You're working in clubs at night. Are you doing session work during the day? What's happening? 
how are you making this all work? Well, during the day, I got another job also working at Bloomingdale's in New York City because just that little store. It, yeah, just that little <laughs> store. Um, the beautiful store. I got a job working there because now that I'm singing so much, a girl needs some nice clothes. <laughs> Smart move. Right. And I got a nice employee discount and I started working at Bloomingdale's in New York City. And um, I was doing that for a long time. And I worked there part time and, and got there and got back home in time to be there for my son when he got out of school. So I could pick him up from school. Sometimes I couldn't. My mom or someone in my family would do it. And so I'm working part time. I'm coming home because my priority, Kara, was always I got to have for my son. I got to make sure he's good. And because I'm, my mom is sacrificing so much, I don't want no any weight, more weight that's on, that's on her to be on her. So I made sure I brought money home and helped with the bills. And that was my way of dealing with my guilt, being away. And I, and I was helping my mom and we had this agreement and I was working during the day and then I was singing at night and you do have to hustle because people will see you sing somewhere and they be like, hey, can you come sing here? Can you come sing there? But they, some people want you to come sing and not really pay you what you were worth. So I had to learn how to ask for what I was worth. And that took a long time. But I was working a lot, even at 23, 24, 25, 26. I was working and singing and hustling and singing just about everywhere in New York. And bigger gigs started to come. Also, I got approached by an independent record label to do house music. And around that time, I recorded my first house song. It was called Free Girl. I think I was in my early 20s. I get a little blurry with the age, but the early 20s, I recorded this record. The guys told me that they would pay me to record the album after I recorded it. They gave me a little bit of money before, but I recorded that album. And that was my first time really getting burned in the record industry because, yeah, they recorded the record, had a release party and everything, and I never got paid. And I didn't really have anyone in my corner, like a lawyer or a manager, to help enforce me getting paid. And I was devastated because the song came out. And it was just like they walked away from me and I was devastated and I had to take a moment and regroup and say, okay, I can't be out here. This is not all fun and games. I got to get serious about this thing. If I want to do it for a living, I got to handle it like it's a business. And that's what happened. And that was my first time getting burned and last time really getting burned to that capacity in this industry. So I, you've mentioned a couple things that that I think come up a lot for people listening to this podcast. That notion yeah. of asking for what we're worth and the challenge that that can be. Because again, yes. we're trained to cook the Fisher Price bacon, not bring it home. Yes, right. And so right. there's that. And then I hear you talk about like you had to really step up and learn how to handle this as a business. Like this wasn't playing anymore. If this was going to be your job. You are going to figure out how to do it. What can women listening learn from that experience and you kind of putting it into that new gear? 
I feel like the women listening to me and hearing me say this, you have to know your worth. And people say it all the time. I hear that phrase probably almost every other day. It's everywhere now, right? Yes, it's everywhere, especially on social media. And you hear it all the time because women and men, but women need to know your worth. And it's hard to know it and feel it if you're walking around carrying guilt, hurt, pain, have felt devalued in any way, um, and don't feel uh, insecurities about yourself. If you have any of that going on, you're not going to know your worth and you're not going to know what to ask for for yourself. And you, if you can't find it in yourself at that time, you have to do research. And I would read books like I used to go to the library. I'm a voracious reader and I loved to, loved to read self-help books. So if I couldn't get the information I needed, like my mom was always encouraging. My dad was always encouraging. My family was always encouraging. But I still had a deficit in my spirit um, and my soul about being able and having the courage to ask for what I wanted. And um, I kind of went to the extreme in this business by doing that. I remember one time I did a gig with some of my friends. We were supposed to sing back and vocals for this gentleman's artist in a talent show. And he had about four or five of his artists in the show. We went there to sing back and vocals for one girl, but he liked the way we sounded so much. He asked us, could we sing back and vocals for the other people? And he said he would pay us at the end of the night a lot more money and he would give us cash. So my friends and I conferred and we did the show. After the show, we're waiting afterward because we were supposed to get paid after the show. We're waiting. It's myself and two, two more of my friends waiting and waiting to get paid. Next thing we know, the club is clearing out. And this cat's gone, right? Well, he's around, but he's with like talking to other people. So I, I go over and I'm like, okay, we'll we'll be over here waiting. He's like, okay, I'm getting it together. Next thing I know, the people in the club are putting the chairs on the table. And I'm like, wait a minute. Now I'm mad because for me, don't mess with my family. Don't try to make me feel bad about myself. And don't mess with my money because I need my money and I worked hard for my money. So I was feeling very angry and upset because this man lied to me. And it seems like he was going to try to get out of paying us. We were sitting there over an hour, Cara. Oh, just staring him down too, right? <laughs> yeah. So I go over to him and I'm like, um, are you going to pay us? What's going on? You know? And he's like, well, I'm sorry, but I said I was going to pay you in cash, but we're going to give you a check. Now, that's a key line I found in this business. When somebody <laughs> said they're going to give you a check. You best believe 99.9% of the time that check is going to bounce like a rubber ball and it's, it means nothing. And I knew it because he was already looking shysty. So I went to the extreme. I was like, no, man, you said you were going to pay me cash. That's what we agreed to. And I'm not walking. I don't know about anybody else. But I'm not walking out of this club without the amount of money you promised me and greenbacks. Like, I want to see <laughs> some money. And 
he was looking at me and they were saying, who's this girl? Like, who is that? I said, my name is Sandra Williams. It's my name. I did my work and you should pay me. And if you, you're not a nice person, nice people don't do this to people. You said you were going to pay me cash, pay me cash. And he said he didn't have it. And I was livid. My two other friends didn't want to make a scene. And I was upset with them because they didn't have my back. And I said, well, somebody's going to pay Sandra Williams. So this lady, (laughs) yeah. I would not want to see you mad. No, it was bad. I was hurt. You know, it was more hurt. It was hurt because somebody felt like they could take advantage of me and I was going to be okay with it. And so I didn't appreciate that. And that made me upset. And so this lady that was there, she said, well, I'm his girlfriend and I live around the corner. And if you come back in the morning, I'll pay you the money that we owe you. And I was like, how can I be sure of that? I don't know you. I don't trust any of you. So she gave me her address and her phone number to her house. And what I did was I lived in the Bronx, but that club was in Harlem. I stayed at one of my friends that was with me. They lived in Harlem. I spent the night at his house that night. The lady told me to come to our house eight o'clock in the morning. I didn't go to bed till like four. I was up, dressed, (laughs) ringing this lady's doorbell at eight o'clock. And I was the only one to this day that got my money for that gig. Oh, my goodness. So, I mean, it's really persevering. Like, you were like, all right, I'm just going to follow this up. Yes, but I did it in an extreme way. And in that in that regard, I felt like that was appropriate. I was young. I had never done that before. So I had to go off the deep end. But over the years, I'd like to say I've learned how to handle things like that more diplomatically because it still happens sometimes. I'm sure. I mean, you know, Craig has worked in music for years, like, just from the outside looking in the stories you hear and you know just if if i think i consider myself like sort of a student of rock and roll like i love reading about it i love listening to music there are so many characters that have popped up you know oh, just yeah. over time in that world and yeah yes. it's it is something to be seen like <laughs> it is and you got to learn how to deal with it because you can't it is oh it's a balancing act like you can't you cannot handle yourself unprofessionally even though you are being handled unprofessionally there is a gauge as to how you should handle yourself because you have to take the high road a lot of times and you aren't particularly feeling like it a lot of times because people are blatantly taking advantage of you. It happens much, 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 much less now in my life, but it does happen. And it's usually a very, very challenging situation to deal with things tactfully because you want people, you don't want everybody to see you while out. It's not healthy. It's not good for you. It's not good for business. And you have to be professional. So over the years, I've learned how to handle things more professionally. And because music is a tough industry. And let's be real, like your career has continued to just keep growing, right? Like, I mean, for people listening, you know, I, I touched on it in the intro, but like you've gone on to perform with some huge names in music, right? Like when I was looking through just 
album credits and or music credits out there. It's you've performed as a as a Dap King with Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings for how many years? I was there uh, about nine years. And I feel like whenever you're a, a, a Dap King, you're sort of like, you're a Dap King for life, right? Yes. <laughs> really? Once you're a Dap King, you're a Dap King for life. It's a, a beautiful place. I think the Dap Tone record label is one of the crowning jewel labels of uh, soul music. And it was an honor to work there at that label. Um, I was good friends with Sharon Jones, who uh, I met along with Star at the same time, um, singing in a wedding band. And while we, we sang in that wedding band about seven years together, and during that time, she met some of the members, and they formed Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. And when they could afford and needed backing vocalists, they Sharon called all her girls, myself and Star, to sing with her and the band. And we were there for many years and it was beautiful but I sang with Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings which was a beautiful thing um it was a different level of professionalism and a career move and it was beautiful and I sang with different artists and I'm I just feel very grateful to have worked with different artists because what happens is one artist to see you singing with someone then they'll want to use you and, you know, they ask you to come work with them and stuff. So I've worked with a lot of different people, big names, names people really don't know. But it was it, it's really been a beautiful growth period um, between the 80s till now. It's still going. I toured with three major acts, which was actually I'll say four. I toured with an R&B vocalist named Melissa Morgan, who um, I really appreciate her because she was a lady out here making things happen, running her band, doing things for herself. And I learned a lot singing back on vocals under her. And then I wound up hooking up and working with a jazz bassist named Victor Wooten. And I toured with him for about three years and recorded with him. And then I went from there to working with um, different artists like Alan Stone, Benjamin Booker. I did some work with Kesha. And then I wound up working with a band called Low Cut Connie, which is a rock and roll band out of Philadelphia. And each one of these artists and bands, I just learned so much and I grew so much from that young girl um, in the 80s to now. And it's just been an incredible roller coaster ride. And uh, I've been really, really working hard. It's a grind. You have to apply yourself. You have to always be open to learn. You have to watch how you handle yourself emotionally. You have to protect yourself and surround yourself with people who care about you. Yes. And I imagine you're getting more and more experience. You're doing all of these different things. You're pouring yourself into what you're working on. You're touring, yeah. which is a grind in and of itself. Yes. You know, and and I imagine, you know, much like the experience you talked about where you were, you didn't get paid and how much you learned from that experience. It's right. probably mind boggling to think about like everything you've learned from each and every one of these artists. And, you know, we're talking about like 
the names, right? That people might know, yeah. but, but you are, you're not just working with that person, right? Or just that band. You are learning right. from all the club owners that you're dealing with and managers and the, right. like the whole industry side of it as well. Right. And hearing my peers' experiences and seeing what they go through. And I don't know, Cara, um, a lot of my friends are successful because you have a lot. Of, I wanted to say this. A lot of uh, singers, musicians who a lot of people may never know their names or faces. But they're out here hustling, working hard, successful, getting things done, working. You'll see them on TV, backing artists. You'll see them on all kinds of media platforms, and you may never know their names and faces. And I wanted to give a shout-out to them because they work hard and they're out there, and they learn a lot, and we learn a lot from each other. And everybody has their own path. But it's it's been a beautiful journey, but it's also been, I don't want it to sound like it's a fantasy. It's hard work. It's hard work. You better learn the industry because everywhere you turn, there's always something to learn. Because you're you don't have a nine to five job. Sometimes you can be working regularly and then all of a sudden the bottom caves out. Like what happened with uh Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Uh our lead singer, my good friend Sharon Jones, she was diagnosed with cancer um in 2013 when i came into the band it was 2009 she was diagnosed with cancer and she fought it it went in remission twice the last time it didn't and she passed away in 2016 and our band had reached this crest of popularity we were doing television commercials we were touring like crazy. We were opening for big bands like Hall and & Oates and Prince. And Just Prince, right? Yeah, Prince of all people. And I just say that just to say the level which we had reached in our careers with this band. And just my dear friend Sharon, who had worked so hard and struggled so hard and sang her heart out everywhere she went for years, 20 years and uh, she passed away, and our band and our record label was rocked to the core. And we just focused on her and caring for her and taking care of her and trying to salvage the label and work ourselves because our main source of income was now not coming in. And it affected everyone. So it is a constant hustle. You can never rest laurels. As anything, I, I guess anyone in life, really, you have you can't be assured with the music industry that it's going to be there for you forever. Yes. If and you're going to do it, you got to go all the way, pedal to the metal. And Sandra, you hustle, but something I've seen just like watching you interact and being in a room with you. You never give off that grind energy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you do it different. What is your mm -hmm. secret? I feel like this comes so naturally to me. That's all I can say. Like singing and talking with people 
And being in that environment, I've been in it for so long, this music industry and music, that it comes so naturally to me that I don't really feel like even when I'm grinding, even when it's three, even when we have like a 2 a.m. lobby call and we just laid down at 11 and we got a haul luggage through an airport, international travel, all that, I never feel like. I'm grinding. I always feel so grateful that I get to do it. No matter what the hustle or the grind is, even the things that come to me that like Sharon and her illness and uh, the bottom falling out and everything. I don't know when I get in a room with people and I get on stage, I can't really say that I have anything specific that makes me give this off. It's just that I really feel that this is who I am. It's not something that I just do. It's who I am. So I know how to flow with it. And it never feels like work. It never feels like work. I feel like the next time I see you hanging out backstage, I'm just gonna be picturing like this little six or seven year old version of Sandra just like (laughs) working, working it around the pews at church. (laughs) Yeah, working it with the little the corded mic. I just feel like it's it's just a part of me and I feel like this is what I was meant to do and I don't know and that's what you see. When you see me, you see that I am comfortable and I know this is what I love to do and I've been doing it so long. And the hustle doesn't really feel like a hustle until something crazy happens like I'm like okay I gotta make sure I secure money coming in or I gotta make sure I secure work and then I kick something in like I start to just create ways from avenues for myself to make money and then jobs just happen to pop up I have this weird thing that happens with me Kara that things just even though I work to create things, but these amazing opportunities seem to come my way and it just rock my socks off. Like being able to be featured in a movie, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings were featured in a movie called the Wolf of wall street with Leonardo DiCaprio and Jonah Hill. And to be in a movie that just rocked my socks off. Like I just never saw that coming in my life. Wow. So you're getting all of these amazing experiences. Like, I imagine stuff starts coming to you, right? Because you are out in the world, you're touring, you're meeting Mm -hmm. more people, more people are seeing you work, more people are seeing how you work, right? Like, you show up, like you call back. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like you and I started talking about making this podcast, what, in March, I think? Yes, and, and I've been hustling ever since I saw you. Yeah, but I feel like, you know, you don't just disappear. Like, you'd pop up from time to time or we'd see each other and you'd be like, all right, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm touring for this long. And obviously, I know Low Cut Connie's schedule because I'm always like, yes. when are they playing near us? Yes. Does it ever get easier, right? Like, I would imagine if I was a younger artist or someone trying to break into this industry and hearing, like hearing you talk about hustle like what's to learn from this like I imagine it gets easier at a point but what things do you do to help facilitate those things coming back to you well 
I start at the, the core and my core is I make sure that I come out of my mouth, out of my presence with a very humble and positive energy. I come from a grateful place. I come from a confident place and knowing that when I do get on the mic and someone calls me to work, I know that I'm going to bring my A game. Getting the work done that they require of me is my main focus. And I come from a very respectful place. When I'm called to do a job, I'm grateful that they call me because there are 20,000 other capable vocalists and singers out there. And I'm sure the people that call me know a lot of these singers. But for some reason, they choose me for whatever I have that they like, they decide to call me. And because I'm grateful for that, I really respect it and I bring my A game. I'm always trying to do my best. I just go all the way in for these people in this work and my work ethic and respect for the work, I think pre starts to precede me. It precedes me and you build your reputation because of that. And that's very important. You have to respect the work, respect what you're doing, respect the people around you, handle them with care and the work with care and bring your A game and know that when you are doing the work and that when you leave there, that there's nothing else that you could have done. Like you did your best. And that's very important. The grind is not a grind when you love what you do. And even if you're in a position where you're doing something and you're not quite happy doing it, like sometimes with singing, you could be paired up with other musicians and singers and because of personalities and things like that everybody's different you know colorful they come to work with different kinds of energies you might not be dealing with people who you would particularly deal with away from that setting so you have to learn how to handle yourself and still be professional and get the job done even when there's negative energy around you so that's another thing so I think for me I think what people can learn from me, the ladies listening, is just to always be your best. Don't stress out about it. Like, uh, don't do that. <laughs> don't. That's not going to help anybody. You just got to say, this is me. This is what I bring. They chose me. They want me here. Let me open up like a flower and just bloom and show all my beauty all my good stuff and leave it here and that's what I got to give. Thank you for having me. I'm grateful to be here. I'm going to give you my best and I take that with me everywhere I go and it precedes me and I think that is why work comes to me and people call me because I, I'd i like to think it's because of that. I think one, it's your beautiful voice. But then two, I think you make a really great point that people want to work with the people they want to hang out with, right? Like, especially in a job like you do, it's not like you're just like sitting behind a computer answering a phone, right? Like you're actually having to make creative decisions. And, you know, you see artists at their best, 
doing their thing in the flow state. And you, you probably see artists when they're in the studio and stuff is not coming easy. And, right. and I guess I want to ask, how do you stay so positive and how do you stay so humble? Because you you are a successful working artist. Yeah. You are making a living doing this work and you are seeing the world and you get opportunities to write, you get opportunities to perform. Yes. You're getting paid. Yes. <laughs> what helps you stay humble? What helps you stay real? What helps you stay positive? Well, it's because I know that tomorrow's not promised and you're just as good as your last gig in this industry. Because once you're doing a gig and that gig is over, you got to make the most of that bread that you just made. And you have to stay hustling and working to make more money. Because, like I said, you don't have a check coming every two weeks, right? So you have to make the money and learn how to work with it and make it stretch. And knowing that you don't have money constantly coming in unless you got like a straight tour or, you know, you're working in a situation where people have you on a retainer, which is they pay you to have access to you. And with Sharon Jones and Dap Kings, my setting was I got paid a certain amount of money per gig and stuff. So knowing that that those are my conditions surrounding my career, I just stay humble because you, you can never get fully yourself for me i cannot my head will never need a kickstand because <laughs> i i cannot get full of myself there are so many talented people around me i'm getting older my son will be 39 in february i just turned 55 i'm getting older and my work still comes but things change, shape, and I just feel grateful. And that keeps me very humble that people still call me and want to work with me. My phone rings a lot and people call me and talk to me about working with me a lot, which I think is great and it fascinates me and it kind of blows my mind. Um, that they do and I just think it's beautiful and I never take that for granted and that keeps me humble and keeps me um, I don't know it just keeps me feeling good about my career you just never know when life is going to change on you or when things are going to happen and losing my friend Sharon Jones and then consecutively our label mate, our record label mate, Charles Bradley, also the cancer. You just never know when life is going to change on you and you just got to go for what you know. My son told me the other day, he said, mommy, tomorrow is not promised. You got to go out and get what you want. And ask for exactly what you want and go get it because why shouldn't you? Tomorrow's not, nothing's promised, not even tomorrow. I got sick recently and it's, I think it's the worst my voice has ever been, Kara. This weather this year has been weird, right? Well, yeah. This year has been uh, weird. Snow and then it's 60 and. Yeah. Right. 
and leave it, and I was on tour with Low Cut Connie, and we travel, you know, we do the Josie and the Pussycats thing, which we're in, like, <laughs> two vans, Chandra the pianos in the back of one of them, and we're just humping the roads in these two vans. So I'm in a van with Adam, our bass player, Luke, our TM, Josh, and we're heading somewhere down south in Kentucky somewhere. So the weather we're going from the summer is supposed to be summer into fall. And there's supposed to be this, this, this gradient into fall. Well, it wasn't. It kind of shot right into getting cold. And I went from being in the air conditioning to now all of a sudden turning the heat on in the van. Oh, right. And that seemed to have a very negative effect on my vocal cords and my breathing passages. And I lost my voice on the road. Never happened to me before. Yep. Never happened to me before. I panicked because I was like, oh, my God, I couldn't sing for a couple of nights with Adam. And I did everything I could. And. That was very sobering to me because I'd never been in that position before. And I was like, oh, my God, it's possible that one day I might not have access to my voice. Something that I've always had for like 55 years. And it made me think like, okay, so take care of yourself the best you can and start to do other things with your life. Like I'm writing now. Like uh, I'm trying to write a book. I'm writing more of my songs. I'm collaborating with people. And if the day comes when I can't have access to this voice, which would be really devastating to me, but I got to make a way for myself and I don't expect anybody to give me anything. I got to still be a creative. That's who I am. And I still got to make a living for myself. So those things, Kara, keep me very humble. Wow, that had to be incredibly scary for you. And I can I can relate on a small way. Like, you know, I, I took a, a sail down our stairs yes. and, and knocked my noggin a little bit. Yes. And, and wow. having a concussion and having your brain not working as it predictably had for the, you know, 40 plus years before, there were definitely some moments where I was like, am I ever going to be able to focus for more than two hours again? Am I ever going to be able to do everything that I basically had taken for granted until falling down that flight of stairs? Right. You wonder if you're going to be back whole again. Like you don't even, you have no clue. You don't know. It's scary. And then the crazy part was, it was so crazy, the timing of it all. Like, I still think about it because my voice is, I'll say, 80% back on point. It's not 100%, but this was, like, within the last month. And it's so crazy because I got called to do a voiceover for a television commercial on Lifetime for the A&E network on TV and it was for their holiday songs and I was supposed to sing um it's the most wonderful lifetime of the year <laughs> and I went in I was supposed to go in and I called the lady and I was like you're not going to believe this but 
I could barely talk to you right now. And she's like, stop playing. I'm like, I am not playing. So she's like, well, look, we're going to give you a couple of days. You rest. But we're going to give you a couple of days. They gave me a couple of days. I shut my mouth. Adam was cool. He didn't let me. He took. He let me, you know, just rest myself, which was beautiful. Thank you, Adam. And um, a couple of days later, I said, I think I can do this. And she said, well, I don't want you to hurt yourself. So anyway, she found the studio where I was. I was near Philly. And I went in and I recorded the, the jingle. And I didn't think they were going to accept it because I know how my voice sounds when it's 100%. And I feel like my voice was kind of like at 75%, which, you know, I'm not trying to go anywhere singing at 75%. But I wanted to do this work for this lady, and they were kind enough to have me. And I went in, and I gave a 1,000%, and I sang it. And I wasn't expecting them to keep it, but they kept it. And I was so grateful and the commercials running now, but it made me say like, why in the world was my voice was just a hundred percent all year or all. And this little small window, I get a call for one of the important, most important high profile jobs I ever had. And I didn't want to blow it and I didn't want to miss it. So I went, I still went in and gave it my best, you know? But I think that's why you get the calls back again too, right? Like the fact that you were just, you didn't try to play them. You were like, this is what's going on with my voice. Right. Like, can you give me a little bit more time? Like, Right. I'm always honest. And, and you showed up. Yep, like, I showed up. You got to show um, up. You got to show up. You got to show up. And I'm not saying push yourself past a reasonable place. The lady was more concerned about, you know, my voice and me taking care of myself than she thought I was. But I know myself and I know my voice. And had I felt that I couldn't give her, like, my very, very best, but I could at least try, I wanted to try. And if she said that wasn't good enough, then I was good with that. I would have been at peace with that. But I wanted to try for her because they had carved out the time. They were looking forward to it. And they really were beautiful with me over there at A&E. And I just want to say thank you so much to them. But it was a lesson to me to say my voice. It was the first time I had to say to myself, my voice might not be there for me. Whew, and that is scary. And I, yeah. how has that shifted how you think about taking care of yourself now? I mean, you've mentioned some of the ways, but has that changed, like, how you physically take care of yourself on the road or even at home? It did, because, first of all, I, my voice doesn't sound the same as it did when I was a little perky-boobed 20-year-old. <laughs> my voice doesn't sound the same as it did when I was 30 and entering into full womanhood. I don't sound the same as I did when I was 40. Here I am, 50. My voice still, to me, has its own unique, beautiful characteristics, but they're different. And now I have to take care of myself. When I was 20, 30, I was singing everywhere, just acting a fool with my friends, you know, all of that. <laughs> you know, falling Gee, out. Sandra, of the I don't know what you're talking night. about. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> yeah, 
falling out of the club all type of night. But now <laughs> I make sure I hear that the most important thing you can do, even if you aren't a singer, is to shut your mouth and get some rest. Yeah. So I try to make sure I do that because that's difficult. That's not easy to do. It's hard to do when you're a talker and you love talking to folk. And you get excited by it, right? Like for me, I am like 45% introvert and like 55% extrovert. So it's like I know I need my time to rest and like sort of recharge on my own and kind of have some time to process like everything I've taken in when I'm out there in the world. Right. And sometimes I get like so curious and excited. Like I know I usually see you in Austin. Yes. Like the last couple of years you've played with Connie down yes. there. And I feel like that's a week where I'm like, oh my God, there are so many people doing such interesting stuff and have such great stories and yes. study these amazing things. And they are all right here this week. And my right. tail starts wagging right. and I go crazy and I want to talk to everybody and I want to hear like, where did you grow up? What did you do? How do you do this? Like, right. and I have a million questions. Like, I've been firing at you all day. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's so hard sometimes to pull back and go, oh my God, I have this opportunity to talk to this really cool person right now or see this band or see this artist do their show or their thing. But recognizing, like, I'm going to be a cranky, unfocused, pain horse. in the ass. Horse. Yeah. <laughs> And horse. Uh, God, I remember seeing, you know, Nicole Atkins. Yes. I remember seeing her perform at like 11 in the morning and she looked like she was really having a hard time. Like, mm-hmm. like you know, performed five times in like two days before that. And then all of a sudden, you know, only having a handful of hours from the last the last song to the first one in the morning. Yes. Those early it morning hard. <laughs> those those early morning gigs are rough, but that's when you got to put the pedal to the metal and go for it. And I, you know, I know there's a lot of women listening to me right now. So hi, ladies, and I just want to say to you all, um, I'm just I'm a singer. I forged the way for myself in this crazy business of music, but I wouldn't have it any other way. But you have to really. Find a way to believe in yourself, even when you don't. A lot of times, I'm not the most confident. And a lot of times, I am very confident. I can't pick and choose those moments. A lot of factors come into play every day. Different scenes where I am, all that. People I'm interacting with, which kind of like my confidence can fluctuate i can be singing in front of thirty thousand people and feel like i can challenge the world and then when i have a little intimate gig where the people are like three feet away from me i feel less confident because people are right in my face so things are different but you gotta find a way to believe in yourself and and pep yourself up and be your own cheerleader inside your head, inside your heart, when things around you aren't. And it's not easy to do, but the more you do it, it seems the better you get at it. And you got to also know that you're not going to always feel jipper and peppy and 
happy and in good spirits you're gonna be feeling like crap some days you're gonna be you know emotional some days you're gonna sometimes you're gonna feel like you don't want to get out of bed sometimes you don't get out of bed um there's been times Kara, where and i gotta say it because you know just talking about the highs is is good but it doesn't cover everything there are times when in this business because such of the weight is I'm making it for myself and I'm not sure where my money's going to come from, how I'm going to meet certain bills. Um, am I going to be feeling good health wise? And I worry. And there are times when I battle with low feelings and feelings of depression and sadness. And there's been times when earlier, when I started to tour, I talked about my, um, guilt and stuff and I also dealt with health issues I became depressed and there were times when I didn't get out of the bed or I didn't go out of the house for two or three weeks I came home off the road I was Sandra Williams with all the glitter around me and when I got home I was um, depressed and unsure and burned out and not sure what I wanted to do with myself and I needed a minute because when I think about it, one of my friends and I were talking the other day, Kara, I've been touring straight with little breaks in between little breaks since 2005. That's a lot. Like I never thought of it cause I'm constantly going and this is what I know, but Kara, that's a lot. I don't know how I got through it. I just did, but there have been pockets of time when I just had to shut it down, call it depression, I don't know. I just had to, my body was just like, okay, girl, you need to sit down. And my yeah. mind was like, okay, girl, you need to shut it off for a minute. And I didn't want to see anyone. I didn't have to give to talk to anyone. I was sad and I was depressed. And I didn't come out of it until... I was ready to come out of it. I read self-help books. I talked to some of my good friends. I bust my diet down from crappy stuff to more healthier stuff. So I go out for walks. I go. One of the things I love to do is just go in department stores and just kind of window shop and be quiet and read the labels. My grandkids used to be like, you read the labels on everything, Grandma. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> Why? Wow. <laughs> um, it's soothing to me, and it's weird, but that's what I like to do: be quiet. And you, I heard you say you're forty five percent. You said forty five percent introvert, fifty five percent extrovert. Yep, I've just got just enough where people all think I'm an extrovert. <laughs> right, and I—I I don't am. think people realize how much quiet time that I need away from people. I get it. Like, I'm really a, a fascist about scheduling and at this point in my life, not over-scheduling myself, like giving myself that space to go and really just 100% let my energy be with who whoever I'm meeting with or hanging out with or having dinner with and like be there and be present. Right. But also recognizing like, yeah, I can't. Like, I can't do that, like, have lunch with someone and then go have a coffee with someone else and a coffee with someone else and dinner with someone else and be on the phone in between all those things. Like, I just, 
you're not going to get no one is going to get the best out of me if if that's sort of where I'm at. So I've just learned like, okay, I can do a lunch or a dinner or a breakfast or a lunch right. or, you know, but I have to like, like, it, did you it, ever honestly, try to do that though? Did you find yourself in a place oh, where you were trying to do that? Yeah. I mean, that's how I came to this work initially. I mean, my first job out of school, I, I went to school to be an accountant. So I was a CPA and I took that headache maker of an exam and got through it. Mm-hmm. And then I was working as in trouble debt restructuring and bankruptcy so I often worked for debtors. Mm. So that means if like a company was going to file bankruptcy, they would call us to come in to maybe help turn it around without having to go through bankruptcy and right. have that whole public shit show around them. Right. Um, so a lot of that work was like going and getting a call to go to project, you know, they used to give it code names, which made me laugh. I was like, we're not we're not in a war. It's a, it's a bankruptcy. But yeah, you're you're going to go to Project Bonkers in, yeah. you know, some undisclosed location, pack for 3 weeks and, you know, you, you would work. I mean, like I I slept on conference room floors. You would Wow. You know, like partners at that firm believed what did one say to me one time? And he said it with a smile and thought he was really funny, and that was when I knew I had to get out. He was like associates are like pencils break one by another that was where i realized my skill set was really good at coming into stressful chaotic broken situations right talking to people kind of like all right what the hell's going on here right let's let's study this let's ask some people what's happening right and let's fix this like let's make a plan and that was where i where i sort of honed those skills but the lifestyle was horrid i mean i think i can really relate to what you're talking about about just coming off the road Mm -hmm. and feeling depressed and feeling isolated and just feeling run down because yeah run out i like the term run out like you feel like i felt like i run myself out there's nothing left (laughs) right yeah and it's it's really really hard in those moments to not to not feel it. And even like when you were describing missing your son, like I remember being in hotel rooms, like, you know, some of the time they they wouldn't let us come home for like three or four weeks at a time. Wow. Especially like at the beginning of a case where you didn't know what was going on and are we going to file tomorrow? Like, and it was all very last minute. But like being in hotel rooms or like, you know, staring out some conference room window because I hadn't had a break in like six hours or something. That just thinking, oh, my God, that was yesterday was my mom's birthday. Shit. I didn't. You don't even know what day it is. Sometimes you're like, is this a Wednesday? Is this November? Like, what's going on? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like, where am I? I remember waking up in Miami and I was on a business trip to Miami and it was a short one and it was like in between another project. And I was so fucking tired Mm -hmm. that I remember in the morning opening the the curtains and I was like where am I because all the hotel rooms start to look the same too so you're just like where am I and it was only because I was in Miami where things were like aqua and pink outside (laughs) that I was like oh right right palm trees pink aqua Miami I'm in Miami I'm here for three days okay who am I? What's going on here? <laughs> wow. And you don't really, when you're in it, like once the wheels start turning, 
you are going. You going, you're giving, you're doing. And it, and you so for somehow you find the energy, you get in this kind of uh you get in a cycle and you working it out. It it works out. You going and going and going. And then when you stop, you're like, I can't believe I did that. There were so many times in those first few years that I'm like how did I work for 20 hours, sleep on a conference room floor, work the next day, and somehow, like, fool the client that I had actually gotten sleep, right? Like, they were paying me by the hour, right? You know, they're paying my firm by the hour, and I'm thinking, how did they not know I haven't slept in, like, two days? <laughs> what? Oh, you not sleeping for two days? I fell asleep on one job. The fax machine was on a table. And I remember because when a company files bankruptcy, at the moment that the paperwork is getting filed in a court, you have to fax. And this is this dates me now, right? Like you have to fax a letter to every bank that that company has an account with. And you have to basically send a letter that says the company filed. You are not allowed to do any transactions from this bank account until you hear from the court. Right. Basically. Immediately. Yeah, like, right. you are cut off. Like, don't do anything. Right. And so you have to fax these letters, like, right as, like, this is happening. Like, you get a call from wherever they're filing the case, and then you have to, like, start shoving these fax. Like, you have the numbers already, but you got to, like, shove them through the machine super fast because it's got to happen almost immediately. Right. And so I remember at one point, like, just waiting for that call. Like, I'm just hanging out in a room, like, with a fax machine, and at one point, I was standing up and I was like, okay, do I know how to use this machine? Do I have all the numbers I need? Do I have the letters I need? Do, I have, do they have the right bank accounts? And I'm checking stuff. It was on a table. So like the fax machine, because I'm so short, right, was like literally like practically face level. And at one point, I think I got so tired that I like put my face down on the like keypad and I fell asleep like standing up waiting for this call to start faxing things. And literally, like, I got up and, like, someone was like, were you sleeping? And I was like, no, 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 just resting my eyes for a second. Right. And they're like, you have the number pad, like, impressed into your face. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right, I was sleeping. And I'm pretty sure there was, like, drool on the machine. Oh, but you're right. No. Like, you just – and you lose the the concept of how fast – like, you are going down the road at, like, 95 miles an hour, and you you kind of don't even notice that you've lost the back two tires and just sparks are shooting out at that point. Right. And it's like hard on for fire. because what I'm doing is fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what I was doing was not fun. I can imagine it's a little more tempting when you're having a good time doing it. Yeah, you can you can really jack yourself up when you're surrounded by friends and you're having fun. And it sounds like you, much like me, have had to crawl out of that isolating place and that feeling of depression. And I, I certainly over the years have had periods where just literally that that soul-crushing, fatigue-building, sadness, feeling depression. That it's a you feel depleted. Yeah. How did you come back? What can we learn from your story? I feel like how I come back from these 
episodes of feeling depleted and wrung out is to go back to doing the things that bring me joy that used to bring me joy when I was a kid when I was younger and that I didn't need it's away from the lights and the glitter and the Sandra Williams the star quote unquote or whatever I go back to just being Sandra because most of my life now people introduce me they be like hi this is this is Sandra she's a singer that that's my name. Hi, this is Sandra. She's a singer. <laughs> it's been like that since I'm 20 something. And I thought about it and I'm like, I am Sandra Williams and I do sing, but that's not all of who I am. And I heard you, like I said, I heard you say you're 45% um, introvert, 55% extrovert. Would you believe that I am maybe 80% introvert and I think I'm not being generous enough I think I'm if I'm honest with myself I'm like 85% introvert 15% extrovert you know it's funny I think before I started definitely before I started the podcast but Maybe when I've, you know, through the coaching conversations over the years, like looking at like how women present themselves, like I think people think introversion and shyness is like the same thing. It's not. And they can be, yeah, no, it's like it's where you you get your energy from, right? Like do you recharge better on your own or do, are you the person who like just feeds off all that other energy in the room? Yes, I recharge on my own. When I'm, and, and that's the answer, the last question you asked me, how I come back is I have to, have to, have to, have to have my quiet alone time. It's like food and water to me. And when I was a kid, as little as I remember, as soon as I learned how to read, I was somewhere and had built a little fortress with two chairs, with a sheet over it, uh, slid a lamp under it or whatever, and I was reading the book, just trying to get some quiet time away from my crazy siblings and whatever else was going on in my house. And I would have a fortress. I still need that fortress. So how I bring myself back is I get quiet. I listen to myself think, because like you were saying, you're running, you don't get a chance to listen to yourself think or even think a thought for yourself through that had anything has anything to do with you. So you have to reconnect with that and plug that plug in to yourself. And I get quiet. I move how I feel like moving. If I want to walk slow from that couch to the bathroom, if I want to walk if I want to get it, I get in my car, Cara, and I got a nice sound system in my car. Nothing grand, but it's good enough for me. And I listen, I choose my music that I want to hear, different than anything I sing. Like Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, everything at Dap Tone Records, I love them. Loka Connie, I love the music. I live it, I sing it. But when I'm home, I'm sorry, y'all. 
I'm not trying to listen to the music that I sing at work because I need a break. So I remove myself from all of that and I just get quiet. I feed myself healthy stuff, soups, juices, water. I rest. I take nice conversations with my girlfriends who encourage my spirit. I spend time with my family and and I don't even really do that a lot because by the time I come home, I really come see them. I say hi, but then I got to go back and hibernate. Nobody understands it. I know they think I'm weird and probably think I'm selfish with my time. But if I'm real with myself, I am. And I'm just a strange bird. That's how I'm made. And that's what I got to do to take care of myself. Well, Sandra, if you are a strange bird, I am definitely in your flock because when I'm hearing, when I'm hearing fort books, juice, soup, if you yeah. throw in tea, we might tea. be the same person. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> tea, absolutely. Tea, absolutely. You have to oh, do it. You have to. Yeah, do it. you've you've got to and. You know, it's funny, I I recorded a podcast not too long ago with the figure skater May Berenice Mete, who's a, a French figure skater. Mm-hmm. Um, she was the one, if you remember the last Olympics, that that skated to Beyonce and had a costume change, which I was just like, I need I to talk her. to this woman. Yes, <laughs> but yeah, I, like she, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, she talked a lot about, you know, I think she burnt out initially around like 18 or 19 years old, just because they start so young. Right. And, you know, talking about really strategically making time to do nothing, you know, and, and I think, you know, she, she talked about doing nothing, but I think it, it, it's really about like what you and I are talking about, like those things that are really nourishing. They're not the sexiest things to talk about. Right. Like, no, you know, I don't think anyone's going to be like, "Ooh, wow, Kara, you really read the hell out of that book." No, <laughs> oh, girl, you look wonderful. Uh, uh-uh. sometimes I look in the mirror and I look like that James Brown mugshot. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Just or don't get the gun and take off in the pickup truck. You look crazy. <laughs> I look in the mirror and I go, "Ooh, girl," you, and I'm like, "Okay," and I'm like, "You," I just. You know, sometimes I just, I love to take showers and baths. I love to um, be quiet and listen to music. And if there's a word that I, that and what you're actually doing is healing yourself yes. and regrouping and recalibrating and getting yourself Full, refilling your battery, charging your battery, because you know that's not going to last too long, and you're going to be right back on that on that Ferris wheel going, and you have to do it. You have to do it. Oh, Sandra, I thank you for sharing so much, and especially like you know you're sharing some really deeply personal stuff, and our conversation today has gone to so many wonderful places. I can't imagine women listening aren't going to be inspired 10 million times. But I want to ask one more question before we we part for today. Sure. I hope I'm helping someone. Sometimes you don't think that 
you really have much to say that could help someone. And I'm even sitting here now, like I'm hoping that something I said was able to help someone because talking about yourself is not easy and uh, it feels weird. But um, I hope I'm helping someone today. And yeah, shoot, shoot. So what do you most want Levital Core Salon listeners to know? Or what do you want to dial up from our conversation today? Well, I want you beautiful ladies out there to know that, number one, we have to stick together. That's one main thing. Because in this business that I work in, my closest, most wonderful confidants and encouragers and soul healers and stuff are women and when I think about you all Cara I get emotional because I had one sister and she passed away in 1996 my sister Kim at 31 years old so I have yeah she passed away and she got sick and so I have a handful of beautiful women in my life that helped me get through this life because you don't do it by yourself. And shout out to the men too, but we have to stick together and encourage each other and be there for each other And because you can't do it alone. So that's the first thing. And the second thing I like to say is that people say you got to believe in yourself. And it's true. Sometimes I believe some women go through life and they never fully believe in themselves or their capabilities for one reason or another. And I'd like to say, even if you don't go out there and act like you do, you got to go out there and act like you do, because if you don't believe in yourself, who's going to believe in you? And you got to fake it till you make it. You got to just dig deep. And work that courage up and go out there and go after what you want in life and take care of yourself the best you can while you're doing it. And don't let anybody tell you that you're not. If you can see yourself somewhere doing something, go for it. Don't let people's opinions of you shape who you are because, you know, a lot of us have a tendency to do that. And I've been in that position before, too. So... You know, you got to just love on yourself, really, at the end of the day. Sandra, there is nothing I can add to everything amazing that you just said, except to say thank you. I am so grateful that life and God and the universe or whoever conspired to have us meet made that happen. And thank you for all you do to inspire and really care about other people yes definitely women but i i see you be kind to other people and that Mm -hmm. it's amazing to watch thank you you're very welcome cara i feel so blessed that our paths cross you mean a lot to me and i appreciate you doing this to help people you're very special and uh i just thank you so much Um, I appreciate you for having me and all you ladies out there. I send love, sister love towards you and I wish you the best. Take care of yourselves and you too, Cara. Take care of your noggin. 
Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Kara again. Before you go, I just want to say thank you for listening. Don't forget to share this episode or check out another episode if you really dug it. I just wanted to remind all of you that there are show notes that I create over at levitalcoresalon.com that has a bunch of the links for anything that Sandra and I talked about in this episode. Plus, I added some videos so you could check out some of Sandra's past performances. So if you want some entertainment, check those links out. Also, I want to remind you, I make these conversations to give you ideas and inspiration for making changes in your own life. I know whenever I listen to a conversation like the one Sandra and I had, it always inspires me to think about something different or try something a little bit different. And I want to encourage you to do the same. So I'm going to leave you with this question. What can you apply from this conversation to your own life? What did this make you think of? What's something new you can try? As always, I want to thank Craig Snyder, Darlene Victoria for helping me pull each of these episodes together. And thanks to the creative talents of Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for performing the theme song that you get to hear. Most importantly, don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you. See you next time.